We have been talking about the sacrificial system and how it relates to the plan of salvation. And I'm going to do just a brief recap for those of you who haven't been here and for those who are listening who might have not either listened to previous sessions where we've dealt with this or have forgotten what they listened to. The recap is this, that we looked at Genesis 3 and the fall of Adam and Eve. And we looked at it in light of the conversation Eve had with the serpent. And we noted that the serpent implied and actually stated in some cases specific lies about God. Specific implied messages that misrepresented God's character. And that Eve succumbed to that deception. In fact, when when God asked Adam, uh, where are you? And, and, they ensue in, and the conversation ensues. Uh, he blames Eve, and, and God doesn't say, no, it's not her fault, you take responsibility. He turns to Eve and says, what is this you've done? And Eve says, the serpent tricked me. He deceived me. God never counters that statement. It, he upholds it by turning to the serpent and cursing the serpent. And, and that's the only creature in the story that is cursed. Uh, the other thing that's cursed is the ground. So with that in mind, I'm going to start from the assumption that sin is deception. And that we have been deceived into lies about God, his character, his ways. And what the most specific lie and the most blatant lie that the serpent uttered was the contradiction to God's words, you shall surely die. Uh, if you were to read it in Hebrew, it, it's even more sharp and clear. Uh, God says, "You shall not eat of any tree. You should not eat of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." Uh, literally in Hebrew, that's dying. You shall die, which we take to mean an emphasis. You almost certainly die. The serpent says, "Not dying. You shall die." Or, you shall not surely die. Uh, so it's a direct contradiction to what God has said. And the serpent claims that God said, only said this, or actually questions whether God said this, when in actuality, in Genesis 2, it states clearly that God commanded the man. He was unequivocal about this. He was, he was clear about this. Um, and later on, when God refers back to that, he says, did you eat of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? He uses the word command, not told. So, so we have this most blatant lie that Adam and Eve have come to believe, and out of that lie has come all kinds of misunderstandings about God. Uh, that the soul is immortal, and therefore it either goes to heaven or to hell upon one's death. Um, and then the concept of an ever-burning hell, which uh, Christianity has bequeathed, well, I should say, Hellenistic religions bequeathed to Roman religion, which bequeathed to Christianity, which then bequeathed it to other cultures around the world. Because there are other Asian cultures who believe in, in a place of torment upon death. That's 
the lie that I believe the sacrificial system is intended to address. Does sin lead to death? Or does God? And if it's God who leads to death, then our problem is with God, not with sin. Sin is only the thing that makes God upset with us. But if sin leads to death, then our problem is with sin, not God. And if sin leads to death, then God, and God is not the destroyer, but sin is, then our issues uh, completely change because we no longer have to fear God, we have to fear sin. So along and a component part of this whole discussion about the nature and consequences of sin is the question about God's wrath. Uh, If sin is our problem, then salvation is about dealing with sin. And, And that's the crux of the sacrificial system. So when we came to the sacrificial system in Leviticus, I don't know if you remember, but we read several quotations uh, uh, by Fader about the word kipper. Kipper means to atone. It's usually translated to atone. Um, It is viewed by a number of scholars to mean appeasement. And in other places where it has face or wrath as an object or has no object, it seems to mean to appease. That's his clearest meaning. So is it that God is appeased by the sacrifice, by the blood of the sacrifices? And we read extensively uh, Fader's study of this in which he concludes that Kippur in this section, in this uh, passage in in, uh, Leviticus 1 and Leviticus 3, I believe, that, that Kippur means to expiate, meaning being to remove the problem, which is sin. And the reason for that is, is that it, the, the phraseology is la kafir um, al-kata, which is to atone for sin, or to make atone, and it will make, uh, to, the blood is to atone for sin. And that's an awkward construction syntactically in Hebrew. What it suggests is that the writers of the Hebrew Bible went out of their way to take Kippur out of the context of appeasement and pull it into the context of what removes, what cleanses, what expiates. And that seems to be its meaning throughout the text. And the Septuagint translators, that is the translates of the Greek Old Testament that the New Testament writers used, translates accordingly. It follows literally the Hebrew, and, and therefore it's, it's also awkward in the Greek. It's not until the Latin Vulgate that you have the nuance of appeasement. And so it's Latin Christianity that brought the concept of appeasement into the sacrificial system. But originally, in the Hebrew Bible, it didn't mean that. Uh, this, is, this is very crucial, because if God has to be appeased, and that's part, essential part of atonement, then our problem is with God, it is with his anger, and it is with, not with sin. Sin is only incidental. It's only uh, the means by which God gets angry and, 
and it's it's an arbitrary thing rather than an internally intrinsic consequential thing. So that's where we've been. And there's no place that helps us to understand this better to me than to go to the Day of Atonement. I'd like you to start, and we're not going to go immediately to the Day of Atonement, but I'd like you to start with Leviticus chapter 3, I believe it is. Okay, here it is, Leviticus 4. This is the purification offering, or the offering sometimes called the sin offering. Verse 3, this is about unintentional sins. Verse 3. Elisa, would you like to read verses 3 to 6? Leviticus 4, Four. 3. Mm-hmm. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He is to present the bull at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it before the Lord. When the anointed priest shall take some of the bull's blood and carry it into the tent of meeting, he is to dip the finger into blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord and in front of the curtain of the sanctuary. Okay, uh, go ahead and read verse 7. The priest shall then put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragment incense that is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. The rest of the bull's blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Okay, uh, you need to know the Israelite community is the only one, only community in the ancient Near East who does this kind of blood manipulation. Now the, the Hittites practiced a certain amount of blood manipulation, a daubing blood here and there. Uh, but the sprinkling before the veil that, or the the curtain that stood between the holy place and the most holy place is not found anywhere in any other ancient Near Eastern uh, people. So it's unique. So we need to pay attention. What does this act mean? What does it represent? Now, I want to back up a little bit and reiterate what we've already discussed. And that is that when we, when when the animal is offered, it is the sinner in the Hebrew Bible that slays the animal. Now, the Septuagint goes out of its way to say they shall slaughter the animal. They meaning who? Well, presumably the offerer and presumably uh, maybe others around helping him control the animal so that he can do the slaughtering. But I think the Hebrew Bible, uh, it's, it's safe to go with the Hebrew Bible to say that the sinner actually held the knife and did the slaying. So, so with that in mind, and, and to me what that signifies is that my sins lead to the death of the innocent sacrifice, namely Jesus. Mm. So what is this blood sprinkling before the veil of the bull? What does that mean? So I know this is a hard question, so I'm not surprised if you don't have an answer. Especially if you haven't taken sanctuary class. Is your question on the 
more active on the word sprinkling than just the fact that it spilled because they would put the blood various places to cleanse. Okay, so so maybe one meaning is to cleanse. Okay, I, that's what I was wondering. Is it on the word sprinkling or is it the fact that it's dispersed? We could we could suggest that it seems to mean to cleanse, but the sanctuary is what we call sancta. It's holy. Why would you need to cleanse a holy place? Why would you need to cleanse a holy place? You don't need to. It, it, we, it, to our way of thinking, you don't need to. Holy place is holy. Um, because in the act of dealing with the sin problem which has infected us, the incorporation of our Savior coming to sacrifice himself and the recording of the sins in the past, it infects indeed the whole, at least the record is there. I don't know if that's right, but... Okay, so in some way you're saying that sin is in that holy place. Is there another is there another way we can suggest that sin enters the holy place? Well, uh, usually the holy place, it, um, it represents our own relationship with God once we accept him, you know. So to say that sprinkling of the blood cleanses the holy place, it means that the blood of Christ is the one that cleanses us, our relationship with him on a daily basis, you know. Very good. Uh, so if we enter by faith, that, and the people weren't allowed, of course, to enter into the holy place, but they were allowed to, in imagination, go in with the priest and by faith uh, to enter the holy place. Uh, let, let me recap the sanctuary the way I, I think it's traditionally taught and the way I teach it in Books of Moses. Uh, the court represents the world. The altar of burnt offering represents the cross. The laver represents baptism and new birth. The holy place represents Bible study and the presence of the Holy Spirit, which you have the table of showbread, the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Uh, so the, the table of presence, as it's called, the presence of God is in our com- communing with him through his word. The altar of incense, which represents prayer mingled with Christ's righteousness, and the candlestick representing uh, the Jesus as the light of the world and us as the light of the world. So you actually have, if you go from right to left, which is the way you read Hebrew, Bible study, prayer, and share, which is, if you were here in the 70s, you would have heard those that line quite a bit with Morris Fenton. Uh, that's the way to sanctification. Okay? So the holy place is sancta because it, if we enter into it by faith and, and interact with God in a relationship built on his word in Bible study and, and prayer and sharing with others, then we are becoming sanctified. One, there's, a, there's a spiritual law in, in, second, in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that says... Uh, we all, with, by, uh, we all beholding the glory of the Lord are being changed from one degree of glory to the other, for this is by the Spirit of the Lord. 
that law is that by beholding we become changed. We become like we, what we assimilate, what we focus on, what we spend our time with, uh, that molds and shapes us quite unconsciously. Sometimes consciously, but often unconsciously. So we could look at this as the, the blood cleansing us from sin as it sanctifies us. What is it about the blood? Now, I need to recap from last week because last week we dealt with the blood and nobody here was here last week. Last week we suggested, John has, actually both of you have gone over this handout. Were you in Books of Moses? Yeah. No. No, okay. You took a different class from me. I believe that the Bible teaches that the blood represents the truth about God. Most specifically, the truth about the nature and consequences of sin as exemplified and demonstrated by the death of Jesus. So, if that's the case, how does knowing that God doesn't destroy us, but sin does, and that God is in the saving business, not the destroying business, but sin is in the destroying business, sin and Satan, how does that sanctify us? If, if the holy place is like a representative of a personal relationship, um, does knowing the truth about the nature of sin, by sprinkling it in the holy mm-hmm. place, does that maybe help facilitate personal growth? Well, I would certainly start fearing sin and stop fearing God. When I, if, if I believe that it's sin that destroys and not God, then I have no reason not to trust him. And isn't righteousness by faith, isn't it through trust that God can heal the damage done? That's what he needs. And we can't generate that faith. That faith is a gift, according to the Bible. Uh, we can't generate that faith. How God gives it to us is he gives us a revelation of his trustworthiness that is so compelling that we do believe, we trust in him. If we are open to that revelation, then we take it in. So our spending time with him is building our trust in him and sanctifying us. There's another way in which sin enters the holy place. There's actually two other ways. The act of killing that animal is a statement that really we are to blame for the crucifixion of Jesus. And thus sin has entered the very heart of God. Hasn't it? I mean, wasn't the father anguished by the death of his son? Not angry at us, just totally horrified, upset, um, I don't think God is is free of emotional response. But I think his anger is grief, intense grief that is so intense that the word grief just doesn't do it justice. And I believe that the Father's heart was broken. And the only reason Jesus could die from a broken heart is because he was a mortal person. He was a human being. And he could die. Uh, Father couldn't. But he suffered that horrible anguish at the cross. 
to change the subject a little bit or to go back to something you just said. Um, you're saying the sinner slaying the sacrificial lamb helped get the point across that human sin is responsible for death. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I feel like it, it's not a hard logical jump to say we're putting our sins on this animal and then the man representing God arbitrarily kills the animal. The man doesn't represent God. How does the man? But I mean, like, but like, or, or it gives the idea that the animal's not dying on its own from the consequences of what it did. Some, something external is killing it. Like, how do you how do you combat that yeah. idea? Because then you can. Yeah, it is a demonstra- It is a demonstration. It is not exactly what's going to happen with sinners at the end. Um, because with sinners, we are sinful, and our sins do can destroy us, whereas Jesus was sinless, and therefore our sins had to be put on him in order to destroy him. But in a sense, by our crucifying him and condemning him to die, we put him out of God's protection. Um, and, And by putting him out of God's protection, we allowed Satan and our sins to completely fall on him. And so he suffered the guilt... He suffered from the guilt, from our uh, rebellion, from everything. He, he, it was like that was implanted in his mind. And in that terrible darkness of, of the confusion of Satan's lives, he was tempted to believe every single lie Satan had ever uttered about God. He was able to work through that on the basis of his knowledge about God. And to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I still trust you. I believe you are not the kind of God Satan made you out to be. And that's part of the victory that Jesus won on the cross. That is why he, why he had to be sinless, why he had to have perfect life, perfect obedience, because all, perfect obedience isn't just keeping the law. Perfect obedience is keeping the law because it makes sense and because you believe that it makes sense. And, and you're motivated to by the love of God because the law is the law of love. We love because he first loved us. It's all, all part of that. Um, so that's kind of how I see it. I know that's very involved because I'm, I'm having to take a lot of building blocks that I've ferreted out uh, over the past years. You had your hand. I don't know if my thought is going to... You may have already answered it, but is that why in Desire of Ages we are told that Christ couldn't see through the portals of the grave? It was like he was a sinner experiencing the full wrath of God, which is separation, which is the hiding of the Father's countenance, to use her language in another place. Um, and, and it's, it's God giving sinners what they have chosen. And in the case of Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus said in John 10, I lay down my life, no one takes it from me. Jesus voluntarily went through this experience to demonstrate clearly that it is sin and sin alone that leads to death, not God. Sin separates us. The wicked cut themselves off from God. It isn't something God arbitrarily says, I'm done with you and out of my sight. It's, it's all uh, about what sin does, 
whereas God is in the saving business. And what the cross establishes is that Satan was a liar, right? Now we're going to see this in the Day of Atonement. Doesn't it also show what in the original lie in heaven that Satan said, I can, I have a better way, better government, that if the cross is the demonstration of what he, and ultimately will have another one as well, what he would do if he were in total control. At the cross, he was he was only in charge of a part, mm-hmm. whereas in the coming mm-hmm. future, it will demonstrate what he would have totally done. Yeah, and we're going to see this in uh, the Day of Atonement as we work through it. But what I want to, what you mentioned is there is a third, there is a fourth, third or fourth way, I don't know which one we're on now, <laughs> but there's another way to see how sin has entered the, whole, the holy place and even the most holy place. Uh, it, in effect, I think sprinkling before the, cur- before the curtain of the most holy place, it's in effect saying it has gone into the most holy place. It's affected God. Uh, every time we sin, we ascribe, we are showing that we believe Satan's lies because our sins re- rest upon those lies. And one of those lies is we can't keep the law. Well, it's true we can't on our own. But the law is the law of love. And if we receive the love of God through Christ, we cannot but keep the law as the love of God is in our hearts working in our lives. I'm just kind of curious, this idea of like perfect obedience, uh, like this per- this concept of like perfect love, can a human being, despite Christ himself being able to be on this, this earth and to live sinlessly, I mean, I get that, that's amazing. And for us human beings, is that a fair goal for a human being to live righteously all their lives? Is that possible? That's what I struggle with, at least. Yeah. And and that's that's one of, one of Satan's claims is that we can't. That's one of his one of his claims. What I would like to suggest to that is we can't, and and we get it all wrong when we think we have to. This isn't about you have to. This is about you will. If the love of God is, you've accepted it into your life. Has that ever happened before? Like a human being, like on Earth, like all their lives. Well, I don't think there's ever a human being that's ever going to think they're perfect. If once they do, they're they're really very imperfect. This isn't about grading ourselves. This isn't about whether we've made it or not. This is not about getting eternal life through perfection. If 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 everybody had to be perfect before they're saved, how many people would be in heaven? Very very few. Maybe Enoch. Um, maybe Elijah, maybe Moses. Um, I have some questions about Elijah's perfection. Yeah. <laughs> um, so <laughs> this has to do with prophets. Oh, yeah. um, Was it more like on your intentions? <laughs> it's about transformation. And transformation is not something we do. It is something God does in us. And what he what he wants is to capture our hearts. Let's let's deal with a problem that is almost universally human: addiction. Okay, we can name all kinds of addictions, but we all have addictions, right? Addictions are rooted in a in a lack 
of being loved. We try to exercise power to overcome addictions. But the power actually shoves us in deeper because sin is power-based. Righteousness is love-based. Do you get the difference? So every time we try to exercise willpower apart from love, we get in a ditch. We can maybe do it out of fear for two weeks. You know, I'll quit my drinking. Not that I'm an alcoholic. But I'll quit my drinking for two weeks because I'm afraid I'm going to die of, of cirrhosis of the liver. Uh, so, so for two weeks I managed to go dry. But, but I break down at some point. I can't hand, hold it. I can't exercise enough willpower because what is real power is not that kind of power. What is real power is being loved to the point where I simply don't need a drink. Are you suggesting that sin is like that because we can resist doing wrong things to a different point for different people, but then you'll break down eventually? Exactly. Can can you discuss a little bit like like we, we talk a lot about like sanctification, and then you were talking about how it's just, it's just a process and we shouldn't grade ourselves on it. No. But can you talk a little bit about like where you think salvation occurs in in this picture? I think the moment we come to trust God, the moment we come. To recognize that we're a sinner and we want to turn around and we've got to go, go a new direction toward God instead of away from Him. And we, we, we realize we can trust Him, then He has us. That's where the thief on the cross was. That's where multitudes have been through the, through the history history. Um, back to the sanctuary when you said that sin went back into the most holy um, the verse that has recently been coming to mind is when, you know, at, at the last time in the upper room, Christ says, um, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, and he gives us that promise. And I mean, literally, if he were to go and make the buildings, he'd have been done with that how long ago? It could have been done in seven days at least. <laughs> or less. Um, but my thought has turned of late in questioning. Um, is that going to prepare a place for us, the atonement process by which he cleanses heaven? Oh, that's huge. Uh, let's talk about that. Sorry. No, that's all right. That's a, that's a piece of this puzzle. Where did sin begin? Did it begin on the earth? It began in heaven. So, so that's the final way sin enters the most holy place. It entered long before we were even around. It entered before the world was created. And it entered by Satan's charges against God's character. Who was affected by those charges? Everybody, the whole universe. Why are there angels in the walls of the sanctuary? Yeah. Call them cherry beam. But we, we call them angels. Why are, they, why are these beings in the walls? Are they just guarding the place? That's how ancient Near Eastern people would, would see it. They're witnesses. Yeah. 
And, and for any case to go to court, there has to be, according to Old Testament law, at least two witnesses before a person can be put to death. Mm-hmm. Who, how many witnesses do you have over the ark? Two. At least two. You have two. Yeah. So when Jesus goes to prepare a place for you, uh, I, that place, that, I, I go to Revelation 12, where Satan and his followers are kicked out of heaven because there is no place for them any longer. Why is there no place for them any longer? Because heaven is a sinless place. That, that that kind of I don't even know if it's a word like revelry is not permitted to like continue it. Is that an arbitrary will on the part of God? You get out. <laughs> no. Nobody wants to anymore. Have a hand up. Does it does it have something to do with that? He had to contain it before it permeated through the whole universe so that that is why we became the demonstration place. I don't know. Yeah, he certainly did. But how did he do it? You see, Satan can only reside where he's listened to. He deceived. He could not get the angels and the other worlds (laughs) to listen to his lies. That doesn't mean they weren't affected. Because uh, according to what I read, at the death, just before Jesus came as an infant in Bethlehem, angels were standing at the edge of heaven with thunderbolts in their hands ready to destroy the earth. They did not comprehend that sin is what leads to death. Well, if you had been watching when the world destroyed, was destroyed by a flood, would you know whether God had done it or whether it was natural consequence? Would you be able to really discern that? I don't think so. At ground zero, you can't discern much. Sodom and Gomorrah, is that clear? No. The uh, swallowing up of Korah and Dathan and Abiram, is that clear? No, that's not clear at all. So... The angels were ready. You know, God will help you. The world can just go up and smoke and we're done. We don't have to go there anymore. Ellen White suggests that God, the angels were even reluctant to come here. And God doesn't force people. Right? So, what I would like to suggest is that when Jesus goes to prepare a place for us, he goes to convince the universe that we are safe to have as neighbors and friends. He's preparing a place in our hearts for the universe. He's not preparing a place in God's heart. God wanted us from the foundation of the world. He gave us Jesus so he could have us. He's he's only wanting to save us. Um, So uh, we need to move on. But I would like to go now to Leviticus 16. That's why he goes as high priest. Mm-hmm. Back to him. Um, okay, let's go to 16. 
And we're going to only go part of this, but verse, chapter 16 is in the context of the Nadab and Abihu story. Apparently, Nadab and Abihu burned incense in the most holy place. And so they went into the very intimate presence of God trying to appease him, is what I believe they were trying to do. Uh, they offered their own fire. In ancient Near Eastern perception, you appease the gods by doing things for them. And incense in Mesopotamia was used to do things, uh, to appease, appease the god. To Well, you, if you've smelled incense, you know it has a very almost soporific effect on you. you. You can be lulled to sleep almost by breathing in incense. And so incense was used to soothe the gods, keep them calm, keep them from getting angry. And I believe they went into the most holy place intending to do that and out of harmony with God who already is love and already loves and forgives, the natural consequence was that God is a consuming fire to sin wherever it's found. And they were uh, unfortunately sinful material and died. So uh, this is, uh, God is telling Moses in the context of this, you can't go into the most holy place at any time, uh, just whenever you feel like it. You can only go in once a year and only the high priest. Uh, That's a safeguard. But underlying this, I believe, is an implication. What does it take, the question could be raised, to get safely into the presence of God in honor? What does it take? And and the, the Day of Atonement, <clears throat> Yom Kippur, is the means of removing sin from the most holy place. Our sins, the sins that ever have been in the universe, removing them effectively from God's reputation. God is no longer going to be to blame. He is vindicated. Not that God has ever been to blame, but he's, he's been obviously accused. To, and we do it all the time when I teach God in human suffering class. Almost invariably, somebody will raise the question, uh, isn't God to blame? So there's these two goats. I'm going to ignore the bull. Bull is a sin offering. Uh, it seems to have a different function. The, the blood, it's the blood of... Yahweh's goat that removes sin from the sanctuary, plus the act of putting those sins on the goat for Azazel. So there's two goats. There's Yahweh's goat, that's God's goat, and there's Azazel's goat. Who's Azazel? Adventists say Satan. Most evangelicals say that's another symbol of Christ. But Jewish tradition has long held that the second goat, the goat for Azazel, is a demon. It's a desert demon. Uh, goats uh, represented demons in, in Mesopotamian Canaanite uh, mythology. Uh, so what we have is these two goats, one for Yahweh and one for Azazel. And, and so you go into the most holy, the priest goes into the most holy place, he sprinkles the blood over the ark of the goat for Yahweh, meaning that Jesus' death effectively removes 
from God's reputation all charges of wrong. God is fully vindicated. And at the same time, we are cleansed. We are cleansed fully. We are now, it is now safe for us by faith to go into the most holy place into the presence of God. And, and ultimately it's going to be safe for us to look on the face of God for eternity. The interesting thing is that then those sins, which blood seems to convey those sins, seems to transport them, those sins are placed by confession, not actual blood by confession on the head of the goat for Azazel and that goat is taken out into the wilderness and the word is sent away actually just let go that was to be the end of it sin be effectively removed but later Jews uh, during the post the exilic and post exilic periods uh, got worried that the goat might wander back and so they broke its legs. Does God break Satan's legs? No. That wasn't part of God's plan. He simply lets him go into the wilderness. Now the thing that's very in- in- interesting is that the best definition for Azazel is to regard it as a metathesized form of an Akkadian word and a Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word could be Akkadian, actually, because they're related very closely. The If you take it that way, and, and one of the scholars that I have looked at does, I used to take it that way all the time. And then I started questioning myself and, and deciding not to. Um, and then I read this scholar named Tawil. He's a Jewish scholar. And he contends, like me, that it means angry God. So who in the plan of salvation is the angry God? It's not Yahweh. It's Hasatan. Satan is the angry Satan is the angry God who has tried to switch all the labels and make God out to be a period like he is. And because we have accepted his lies, God has been forced to use prophets who would speak the language of the people. And thus we have all these references for divine anger. And we tend to read them into them, the malignancy of Satan. And that's not what they mean. If you do a comparative scripture with scripture, Comparing scripture with scripture, which is the historic way Adventists used to read their Bibles. Uh, you find out that God, the best definition biblically of God's wrath is God gave, letting people go, giving them up to the consequences of their choice. I would like to suggest that until we see God as he really is, until we are fully persuaded that he is completely 100% love and we come to fully and completely trust him through thick and thin we can't be done with sin that doesn't mean we can't be saved 
if we are trusting him as much as we can at the moment and following him and letting him transform our lives as much as we can. That he That's where Christ's righteousness comes in. What he does, it's, it's sort of like he takes our characters deformed and, and not quite right as they are and takes his own and places it over our characters, kind of like a grid, and shows how we are really going the same direction. We just haven't arrived yet. Mm. So that's how I see this. I do believe that given what is going to happen in the very last days, that the crucible is going to be so hot that we will either become like God or we will become like our enemy. But that will not be something we have a checklist on. See, did I do this? That is not law-keeping. Law-keeping is love-keeping. When we can love our enemies, Jesus says that's perfection. We can't do it on our own. I, I've had people really abuse me in life. Um, I have a person right now that I'm having to deal with. And the only way I can love is to go to God and say, please love me and let me, through your eyes, love that person. That's the only way I can do it. All my goodness is borrowed. All my, any love that I have for other human beings is borrowed. It comes from God's love. Because God created us that way. He created us to love because we are loved. Love is experiential. It is not logical. In the sense of being a left brain response, we look at the data and then we love. That's not how love happens. Love happens through demonstration, through experience, through imitation, through acceptance, through through God just enveloping us with his presence. That to me is what the work of the Holy Spirit is in part to do. That's why uh, I like the King James Version translation of comforter, even though it's not accurate. Because to me, the Holy Spirit is to embrace me with the love of God so that I actually experience that love. And when you sense the presence of God in your life, you it's almost like getting a huge divine hug. But that hug is not this kind of hug. It's, it's an envelopment of love that actually gives life and rejuvenation and makes a person uh, almost like a new being. I can only explain this in in my own experience. When I was a 14-year-old legalist and an arch-critic of every human being around me, I spent all my time looking at other people's faults and criticizing them, mostly to my best friend. Thankfully, I didn't criticize her. We probably wouldn't have been friends. But I remember sitting at camp meeting and criticizing everybody that was walking around. Her dress is too short. And the hit cut his hair. And, and it was just on and on. Nonstop. <coughs> and meanwhile, 
I began to sense that something wasn't quite right between me and God. The Holy Spirit was beginning to work. I was I was in real danger of losing everything. And he began to talk to me in a way that I could understand. I didn't hear of any any even an impression. It was just my thoughts started going in a certain direction. And I take that to mean the Holy Spirit was working on me. Uh, my thoughts started going in the direction of, you know, <clears throat> all we have to do is love God. That was a week of prayer speaker uh, in my childhood. And I said, okay, so I have to love God. So that becomes commandment number 11. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So I looked in my heart and discovered that I didn't love God. Thankfully, I was honest enough to see that. I was also honest enough to know that I couldn't manufacture it. So I started praying for it. God, please help me to love you. And nothing happened. I prayed for weeks and nothing happened. And I started to get angry at God. Don't you want me to love you? And, of course, I expected him to send a warm, tingling feeling to my heart, and then I would just love him. Kind of like magic. And then I read a sermon by Morris Venden that said, you have to, you can't love someone you don't know. You have to come to know God. And he recommended reading Desire just for half an hour. So I sat with my, the clock, and my and Zara pages, and I looked at the book, and I looked at the clock, and I looked at the book, and I looked at the clock, and I looked at the book. And after half an hour of agony, I had not come to love God any more than I before. <laughs> and after a few weeks of that, I was like, this is not working. And one night, I decided to pra- pretend I was preaching. Something I loved to do as a kid. I did it from the time I was nine. I was going to wow. I was going to move my audience to to full repentance and love for God, and I was going to do it by taking them through the whole story of salvation uh, from the very beginning, from Genesis to the cross. And I was I was going to portray God in such a loving manner they would just be moved to love Him. See, I didn't know how it was done, but I just couldn't seem to make it. <clears throat> so I, I started doing that, and I instead of God sending a far distant son to this planet, it was God himself always trying to win us back, doing everything he could to try to get through to us. And by the time I came to Jesus, <clears throat> I had stopped preaching, and I was simply living the story. It became that real. <clears throat> and I got to Gethsemane, and the cement of my heart began to crack. And it was like, I don't know how, how to put it, but it was like my whole world was just breaking up. And I didn't get to his trial, none of his trials. I didn't see the scourging. I didn't see any of that. It was all I could do to get to the cross. And I got there just in time to hear him say, Father, forgive them. Or they know not what they do. And my whole world came in. I realized that a God who would go that far to win me back 
was a God I could trust. And I realized the reason I didn't love him is because I didn't trust him. And I want you to know, it completely transformed my life. My life has never been the same since. <clears throat> and I, I, changed, I was transformed from being a critic of everybody to loving them. <clears throat> and so to me, this is, this is where I'm coming out of when I talk about cleansing from sin, sanctification, perfection, all those things. For me, it isn't anything that I do. It's all of grace. It's all of God. But it's something He did to my heart. Because it was the Holy Spirit that enabled me to live that journey of Jesus and to see the love of God in full. Was it me? Um, and I, I think that's where, why we have to Really let him. And I think, I think we work harder at being lost than we ever do at being saved. Because I, I think part of what, and I, I've actually experienced this with other students. I had a student one time come to see me. And I, I've, I've said this before, but this is a different group, so I'm going to say it again. Um, John, I, I, I'll, I'll call him John. He not because John Mangan here, um, but John had had an unfortunate situation with his family that was extremely, extremely painful. He had been deeply hurt as a child, and he had uh, lost heavily, terrible loss. He came to my office after a class where I had really experientially unpacked the fall. And he said, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's what I'm going through right now. And we talked and I invited him to open up to the love of God and to let God's love heal him. And he couldn't take the risk. The risk of being vulnerable. The risk of what if, it, what if God lets me down. The risk of, of uh, all of the pain of the past. And... He couldn't let go of the, <coughs> the toughness he had built up in his being to protect himself from further pain. And I think that's why, why a lot of us reject the love of God, why we distance ourselves from it, why we can't embrace it, is because uh, we have had to seek power as a compensation for the pain and injuries that we've suffered, uh, the woundedness that we've suffered in our world. I would like to propose to you the atonement is extremely experiential and real. It addresses our pain. It addresses our need, if we let it. And until we grasp that, I, we aren't going to experience the fullness of God's love that we can, that transforms us. That's, I think, what led Paul to say, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything is new. Um, I, I, that is something we do not do. God does in us. We love it.
And it's through love. It's through his trustworthiness. It's through the truth that he does it. So I can only offer it to you. But uh, we are now done with Leviticus, finally. And uh, we're going to take a hop, skip, and jump over numbers and, and we could spend years on this. Uh, we're going we're gonna to move into the other books and look at metaphors for salvation in those other books before we go to the New Testament. Let's bow our heads. Father, I ask today that you will, in some way, light up our hearts with your love to bring healing, bring restoration. Because sin hurts us. Sin is our cruelest, most formidable foe. And yet we so eagerly embrace it, not realizing how much it hurts us. Pray that we will realize that you are not our enemy, that you are our best friend, and that you want only to seek to heal and restore us into your image. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.